Welcome to Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius, your source for horror, sci-fi, suspense, and all things violent. Thank you so much for joining me today on Vicious Whispers with Mark Tullius. At the end of the episode, I will be playing the brand new audiobook version of China's Die in the Wild West that just came out on Audible, Spotify, Apple, all those good places. I will also be giving away codes for the free download of the audiobook. I will put that into the newsletter, which goes out on Friday. So you should already be signed up for my newsletter. If not, sign up for that. Get the Morsels of Mayhem, whatever other free book I may be giving out. You can get that on my website, marktulius.com. Sign up for that free ebook and get on the newsletter. So I know I read some of the Wild West to you guys. I probably didn't do a great job. Let's go with the professionals. I'm not going to play any of the death scenes, my favorite part, but I will run big chunks. So I think we'll go with like the first four or five chapters. I got to see time-wise. But I'd like to get through this within the next five weeks because after that, that's about the time that Ghostland comes out. And I'm going to want to jump on that. Also, we just had a lot of fun finishing up the first part of Trying to Die in a Dark Fairy Tale. Thinking about some of those death scenes. There are there are quite a few that I don't have any ideas for yet. I mean, I could force them. But first, I want to see what Evan thinks of the main story. What the decision points are if we're keeping those points. Then we can go further into it. But for the really cool death scenes that I was imagining, yeah, I think I want to keep those. There's some pretty disgusting ones. Those should be a lot of fun to work on. But as soon as I got that <clears throat> done, as so I sent that off to Evan on Friday, I believe, and then I just spent the weekend working on Death Fest, formatting that, getting all the last little notes and things like that together, because that advanced reader copy, the ebook version of it, is going out next week. That will be sent to influencers, people like that. I'll send it to beta readers and all that relatively soon, not just yet. And I'm also making the print copy, so next week. Actually, in a few days, I will go ahead and get the advanced paperback copy formatted completely. It's almost done. I'll get the proof sent to me. I'll send a copy to Glenn. We'll go over it, make sure there are no corrections, and then I will send that out as well. So that book should be out about, well, actually a little bit before Ghostland. So I'm thinking like three or four weeks, and then I definitely will be sending those out to all of my special readers. So that's what's been going on lately. We finally put out Try Not to Die in a Hellhole by John Palisano. That's just a short story with an alternate ending. We were very excited to see that hit number one new release in teen and young adult interactive adventure single story. It's very, a very precise category. That's what I'm realizing, the importance of that, finding the right niche. So that did great. I don't even think I mentioned that it was released and it got to number one. So that was super cool. It's awesome to see that the series is growing, right? Now I can put some money behind advertising that we have, what, five full books, Death Best and Ghostland will be six and seven. Plus there's Hellhole. I'm about to, I just got the cover for the sampler. I'm going to put that out next week as well. That will be free or should be free on most sites. I'm going to try to get free on Amazon. Sometimes that could take a little bit of work, but, and I'll also have it down as a free download on the website. So we got that going on. Got the cover for Ghostland being created. We got the first version of it. Duncan and I are going over it, seeing what we would like change. We'll send that into them, get those changes made. 
but I think it should look pretty cool. Really like the colors, really like the font, just about finalizing some other little things. So pretty exciting that all this is finally coming together. It's been a pretty good week physically. Got to go to the acupuncturist. That's always awesome. Definitely helps. And I picked up my jiu-jitsu training. Not necessarily the intensity of it because I still need to take it pretty easy. But I am now going with my wife to her 6 o'clock at night class. So this week I did, I skipped Monday morning because I was a little hungover, drank a little bit with people on Sunday. Did not feel like going to train at 6 in the morning. Sorry, coach. But I did go at 6 that night with my wife. And then went the next night with my wife, daughter, and my niece. My son was there also, but he only did a little bit of class with us. That was super cool to be able to train with all of them. And all I did, I didn't partner with anyone else except for my wife, daughter, and niece. So that was kind of cool. That way I can be safe. I can learn. My wife is very knowledgeable. She's a great partner. So as long as I don't accidentally hurt them because I'm much, much bigger than them, it's all good. It's kind of funny. The reason I hadn't, well, part of the reason why I hadn't been training at night is, one, I'm tired. And I didn't think I would be a good partner for my wife. I was afraid, you know, because of the size difference, I'm not going to really help her much. And just doubting my ability, doubting my, you know, ability to move, my jiu-jitsu knowledge, all that kind of stuff. She was kind of feeling the same thing about herself. She was worried that she wouldn't be a good partner for me. We were laughing about it afterwards. Made so much sense to train together. And it's awesome. She's really into it. I'm starting to get back into it. It's fun getting these skills back and being able to train. So I will be there tomorrow morning. Then Saturday, my son will be having his jiu-jitsu party at 10th Planet Whittier, which should be awesome. I think there are going to be some parents and teenagers on the mat as well for this jiu-jitsu lesson party. And then Sunday, I'm planning on going in for open mat. Not going crazy, being safe, only rolling with guys that I know that are safe. And uh, yeah, so that is what I have been doing. What I did today was not really work at all. I worked a little bit in the morning when I woke up before I got the kids up for school. But then I went to go see my buddy, Anthony Johnson. He was the co-host of my first podcast, Unlocking. And just a great friend. Haven't seen him in a long time. So every once in a while we get together. Today I decided to drive about two hours. Listen to German podcasts both ways. So that was cool. And uh, But it was awesome catching up. It's nice being able to take off of work for something important like that. And I was telling my daughter how cool that is that I want to work. Like I want to come home and fix up these Facebook ads and I want to check out the Amazon ads and I want to write that description and I want to put out this book and I want to get this cover done. And I like, this is what I want to do. I'm doing what I really enjoy. And I, you know, I was just telling her, I was like, I hope you find something like this where you are passionate about. Like, this is what I want to do. This is fulfilling me. This is something I am going to do until it no longer does. But I have a feeling that it shall last a while. All right, guys, I'm going to go because I need to start putting my newsletter together because tomorrow morning I'll be gone and training. So i got to get this shit done. All right, guys, this is Trying to Stay in the Wild West, co-authored by John Palisano and narrated by Stephen Barnett. Hope you guys enjoy it. Next week, we will continue it, and then we'll stay on this until the book is finished. I'm guessing it should take about four or five sessions. All right, guys, hope you enjoy it. Have a great weekend, and I will talk to you later. Peace.
My back's resting against the west wall of our house, the only side with shade. It's nearly ten and already hotter than a blister bug in a pepper patch. These four walls of wood are the only thing separating me and Pa from all this emptiness. Desert as far as the eye can see. A flimsy cloud, thin as my bedsheet, creeping across the brightest blue sky, barely casting a shadow. Our house outside of Placerita Town might not be much, but it protects us from the blazing California sun while keeping out all the critters. Except for these dang red ants. Inside or out, they're always a problem, chomping on you if they're given half a second. It's my fault for sitting in one place, but I'm saving my strength. The little guy on my boot is headed for my leg. I flick gently enough to send him to the sand, but not enough to teach him a lesson. He's determined and heads back for me. I meet him halfway with the heel of my boot, feeling a little sorry for sending him to his maker. Bang! 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 It doesn't matter. I knew those bangs were coming. I still jumped at the first one. Paul's finishing up in the blacksmith shop, the last piece for the trip. Bang! 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 The blows are loud, but the echoes die down quickly. I get up, brush off my jeans, slip on my light duster coat, and strap on my canteen. I wait for the next set of bangs to come and go before I open the shop door. My ears are used to the noise, but the smells always hit me hard. The earthiness of hot metal and fire fill in the shop. Pa's inspecting a red-hot stirrup, setting it down on the forge, his massive hand raising the hammer. He slams it down and sparks bloom like a cloud of raining fire. He looks like a god to me, like someone forging the great cities of ancient Greece or Rome. I can only hope one day he'll come to look at me with some sense of pride. The first few seconds in the shop are suffocating, the sweat streaming down my face. Pa takes off his hat and wipes his forehead with the back of his hand, smearing the black smudge. Nice timing, Rocky, he says, his voice a deep rumble. I nod but keep my lips shut because Pa's still talking. Make sure you carry enough water with you to get you to town. He slips his hat back on, puts down the hammer and raises the pincers. This load's gonna be a clip heavier than usual, boy. The leather saddlebag beside the forge is stuffed with horseshoes and stirrups. I nudge it with my foot. Maybe if we do well, I can put some away toward a four-legger to help out. Tack of the town has got a couple on the cheap. We'll have to see. Pa uses the pincers to lower the stirrup into a cauldron of water. He disappears in the steam for a second and reemerges, his face glistening. It's been a real light year, he says. Not that I like the idea of you having to carry so much by hand. My grunt surprises me when I pick up the bag. I play it off with a laugh. My back's already mad at me. Pa puts the stirrup on the drying rack. Take the wheelbarrow. I don't want to risk it getting broken or taken. I trust you. It ain't me I don't trust, I say. It's all the people in town. Someone's apt to steal it. Plus, it ain't gonna be no fun pushing it over the hill. Pa uses the pincers to pick up the last stirrup. More reason for you to hustle as much of the haul as you can, lest to carry home. Even though it's never happened, I say, I aim to carry only coins back. Pa nods and laughs with approval. That's the spirit. None of those banknotes. 
Pa gestures for me to open the left satchel and sets in the stirrup. They ain't ever no good when we go to cash them in. Don't have to tell me twice about them notes. I close the clasps on the bag and say, Biggest scam going. Pa grins. Right you are. The bag's heavy as a hay bale and I have to use both hands to raise it. Here's to this being empty. More important, be smart and be safe. Always. The fresh air cools my sweat and gives me a bit of energy, making me think the bag's not so heavy after all. I set it down and double-check my pockets, comforted by the folding knife and the handful of nuts. More out of superstition than reason, I slide a horseshoe from the bag and stick it in my duster's long pocket. A piece of paw keeping me safe. The sun's just getting warmed up. By the time I get to town, it'll be dead hot. I take a deep breath and steal my mind, adjust my hat so the sun's off my face. One day, I aim to be able to have a horse of my own when we can afford it and justify the expense. Maybe if they ever bring that rail station to Placerita Town like they've been promising, the town will grow and there'll be more work than we'll be able to handle. With the saddlebag strapped over my right shoulder, I close the fence door behind me and cross out into the unmade lands ahead. The clear blue sky is interrupted by a trio of hawks circling brush down below. One dives, impossibly fast, silent, comes up with something long and rope-like. Snake. Jeez Louise. I feel sorry for the snake. Can't help but wonder if it knows it's done for or just going on one hell of a ride. The hawk dives back down to the desert floor to have his lunch in the same direction as the path I'm taking. The path is well-worn, but not paved or official. The cacti and succulents surround me like a maze. It's been a month since my last journey, and the plant life seems to have grown five times since then. The bright oranges and reds of their stubby flowers contrast with the muted greens of their stems and the dull hue of the sand. I can't smell the plants, though. Everything overpowered by the sand heating up from the sun a mix of earth, rock, and minerals. Sixty paces or so on the other side of the path, there's the hawk tearing apart the snake's head with its talons. It sizes me up for a split second and goes back to its work. I've always been a bit squeamish at the sight of blood, even a snake's, but I can't take my eyes off it, the beak ripping and tearing flesh. A few steps down the path and I lose sight of the hawk behind the bushes, but I keep on moving whistling to calm my nerves. I cut the second note short and freeze, terrified by what I think I just heard. Rattle. Oh, crap. I don't know where it's at. Rattlers are best at blending in, never wanting to be seen, but I'm pretty sure it came from the large bush behind me. Keep calm, I hear Pa tell me. Every year when it gets hot, we find rattlesnakes on our property. That's why we search for them using sticks to open doors and poke the hay before hauling it. But out here's a different game. Instead of the rattlers coming onto our territory, I'm intruding on theirs. I ease away from the bushes and continue up the path. Rattle. I jump back, only two feet between me and the coiled rattlestake I nearly stepped on. And he's ready to strike. Jumping back blind is too dangerous, and this rattler in front of me is going to strike. I bend at the waist and drop my shoulder, whip the saddlebag off my back. 
It crashes down on the dirt, the tip of the snake's tail sticking out, giving its last rattle. Something slithers in the bush behind me, so I snatch up the bag with both hands, run fast as I can, each thump of my heart like a blow from Pa's hammer. About twenty yards down the path, I turn round, my whole body shaking off the fear like a deer who dodged a bullet. The smushed rattler is in the same spot, no sight or sound of any others. I've got to pay better attention. Part of me wants to rush back to the ranch, but Pa would be madder than a bunny stung by a scorpion. No doubt he'd make me turn right back around. I heave the saddlebag over my left shoulder and head for town. The path curves and twists up a little higher, the ground uneven but familiar, even though last summer's fires destroyed most of the growth. A lot of it has come back, desert blossoms sprouting from the burned husks of the chaparral. From the top of this outcropping, the entire valley spread in front of me. An unbelievable view every time. So beautiful and vast, I can't imagine anything better. This is my home. On the far side of the valley, Telegraph Hill stretches up. Makes me feel like I'm on the edge of a giant, dried-up lake. I throw the saddlebag over my other shoulder and head down the path, half a mile at most to the valley floor. If I had a horse, I wouldn't work a quarter this hard, not to mention all the time I'd save. Less likely to have any critters to worry about, too. Even the rattlers. Man, that'd be something else to ride a great mare across the valley. But the reality is one step after another and another, trying to avoid thinking about the heat or the thirst or the horseshoes that keep banging my back. Pa ain't too fond of the idea of a horse, not only on account of how much they cost, but also because I hadn't been mature enough to ride a full-grown steed until recently. But I know I can take care of one, and I can save. At the bottom of the path, I switch shoulders without missing a step, knowing I won't want to get back up if I sit for a break so soon. Even if I can't sell all the wares, I've got to get rid of the heaviest stuff before the journey home. There's light reddish bush blooming down here, a nice contrast to the green and black, the endless stretches of sand. Life cannot be stopped, even in the most extreme places. The heat is rising, so I pick up the pace. If I make enough sales, I'll treat myself to a soda and sandwich at the saloon. If not, I'll have to settle for whatever water I can get. It's bad luck dwelling on the downside, so I practice my sales pitches, picking just the right words for the hard-to-sell customers. Most of the buyers are apt to purchase without much said, but then you got people like old lady Pratchett, who won't buy a thing until she's had at least three compliments, or Mr. Nichols, who makes me plead before he'll spend a penny. It's probably been about half an hour when I reach the bottom of Telegraph Hill, one heck of an intimidating incline that looks more like a mountain. I've always been drawn to arithmetic and figuring out numbers. How far I still have to go, how long it'll take, the number of steps on sore feet. But the more I think, the longer the journey and that much more of an ordeal. Happy with the sales pitches, I set my mind to music. The saloon has one of those mechanical pianos. There's nothing like it anywhere, and especially not on our ranch. The only music we have is the rhythmic banging of Pa's hammer or the chorus of critters that comes sun up and sun down. On these trips, it's hard not to think of the future. If I'm going to end up a blacksmith like Pa, he has me to help him, but what will I do? 
How am I even going to find someone to marry and have kids with? What would I have to offer? I picture Pa bent over, covered in sweat, his knuckles throbbing from pounding metal day after day, all so we can barely break even. Ever since I could walk and talk, Pa's been teaching me the trade, saying, One day, you'll be in charge of all this. Best to start getting you strong now. And for only being 16, I am strong. Nothing like Pa, of course, but I'm not the least bit afraid of hard labor. Nothing like sweat and soreness after a day of back-breaking work. Makes you feel like you really did something. And being strong means with the mind, too. It means step after step after step, ignoring the blisters on your heels, the metal digging into your spine, the leather rubbing your neck raw. It means blocking out that fire burning through your thighs, singing songs and hearing that piano playing like I'm sitting in the saloon, that big old fan swirling the air. My legs are jelly when I reach the top of Telegraph Hill, the saddlebag clanking in the middle of the dusty path as I set it down. I shake out my hands and stretch my back, spot Placerita Town. So far out, it looks like a row of tiny dollhouses. Several miles east of Placerita Town is the much larger Newhall Township. The train tracks stretch past two stations, the rock quarry, and wind around the huge dam, as far as I can see. There's been nothing but silence this whole time, but a distant sound's getting closer. Horses! They're approaching from behind, and it sounds like a bunch of them. A huge boulder to my left is big enough to hide behind, but the ground is peppered with small holes that could be home for rattlers. Off to the right side of the path is a huge burrow I can squeeze into with plenty of brush around it. No telling what kind of vermin might be in there, but it'd be better than running into the wrong kind of folks. The hooves are coming closer. If the horsemen are friendly, I'll be fine. But if they aren't, I can say goodbye to the goods, and maybe more. I snatch up the saddlebag and run behind the boulder, dropping the bag by my feet. Crouched down, I press myself against the rock, praying no rattlers are coming out of the dozen holes surrounding me. My skin crawls just thinking about such a thing. Five horsemen fly by in a flash, a cowboy in black on a red mane chestnut in front, a giant of a man threatening to break the back of the brown quarter horse in the rear. They race downhill and out of sight, but it ain't easy prying myself away from the boulder. If Pa saw me being so chicken, I don't know what he'd say, but I'd still rather be safe than sorry. The other side of Pa would tell me I was being smart, not risking getting into a fight I couldn't win. Pa's a tough old man, but he loves me and doesn't want me lost over something petty. As soon as they're way down below and nothing more than a cloud of dust, I throw the saddlebag over my shoulder. This side of Telegraph Hill is not as steep, the trail winding down faster. I'm about halfway down when the dust from the horses finally settles. Their trail ends at Placerita Town. There ain't nothing on the barren stretch between here and there, and it's almost high noon. That means I've got to keep my eyes peeled because it's prime time for critters sunning themselves, searching for food and water and not being too keen on being bothered by some two-legged man-child. Rattlers, scorpions, coyote, all sorts of danger in the desert. The barrens stretch on and the sun's heating up. My canteen's close to empty, so I take just a small pull. There's barely enough water to give my mouth a thin coat, and I know it won't stave off my thirst for too long.
I'm grateful I'll be able to refill it in town. It takes most of an hour before I'm close enough to smell the outhouse behind the Placerita Town Hotel. It reeks from cooking in the sun. The town's small enough to see from one end of it to the other. The hotel and barber on this end, the Sidewinder Saloon and Cahoots General Store, the two biggest draws in the middle, the barn and tax shop at the end. I stick to the left side of the street, the Sidewinder calling my name. All I want is something cold and sweet and a chance to sell a few pieces before hitting Cahoots. The hitching posts in front of the saloon are packed, the smell of horse shit overpowering that of the humans. Stop right there! Someone shouts loud enough to make me jump. It's Derek, leaning up against the side of the hotel, chewing on some loose tobacco, his jaw moving like a horse chomping hay. He's got me beat by two years, but he's on the small side, just like his dad, who's a miner. Derek nudges the bigger kid who's sitting on the wooden walkway, swirling something in a tin cup. Well, you look at that. Look who joined us. Ronnie, the sheriff's big but not very bright son, looks up. Where are you going? I'm tired, fellas. Just need a drink at the saloon, then I'm going to sell some goods. Derek's hands are on his hips, his chest puffed out. You can't just walk right in here like you own the place. This isn't the first time Derek's messed with me, and I'm pretty sure it won't be the last. I keep it cool and point toward the saloon. Please. He walks closer and says, Not without paying the entering town tax. There's no such thing. It's for you, he says, sticking his face so close all I can smell is the chew. I know how this game is played. What's the tax? What do you say? Four horseshoes? You're out of your mind. Paul will... He grabs the tin cup from Ronnie and says, Or drink this water. What's wrong with it? I ask. Nothing besides some mousy tears in there. He pulls a limp mouse out of the cup and tosses it over his shoulder, where the black mare stomps it flat. Derek gets in my face again. So what's it gonna be? Derek kicks some sand, sending a plume up and around us. So what's it gonna be, little man? Need Ronnie to make up your mind for you? Yeah. Ronnie says, his dull eyes getting brighter. I'd be crazy to fight them, and there's got to be something awful in that water. Fine, I tell Derek. You can have your tax, but you'll have to go get it yourself from my backup bag. Your what? Derek asks, his voice higher pitched than normal. The one I keep hidden down the path. I hate hauling all of it the entire way. I only go back for that one if I sell out of these. Ronnie's nodding his head. Derek don't look so sure. Where's it at? He asks. Take a couple pieces and leave the rest so I can bring it back to Pa. Any more than that and he'll notice, and there'll be hell to pay. Yeah, yeah, he says. How far is it? I turn toward the hill and point down the path. About two hundred paces. It's behind the red boulder on the left side. How do I know I can trust you ain't playing me? Derek asks, squinting. I ain't hard to find, and I know I'm in for a hurtin' if I fool with you. Ain't in the market for that. Just want to sell some of my pa's stuff so we can survive is all. I look him dead in his dumb eyes and say, Don't want no trouble. 
If this works out, we can set it up so you're taken care of regular. Derek looks away for a moment, inhales, exhales, makes a point of being dramatic about it, looks back at me. All right, kid. Probably work out. You're a good talker. Just surviving, I say, no joshing. Derek waves his hands around, flustered. All right, fine, he points at Ronnie. You come with me. Ronnie mopes over toward Derek. They take a few steps. Over his shoulder, Derek says, It better be there, kid, or else. And you better not take more than four. Or what? He asks. You and your daddy gonna whip me? He laughs. Of course, he has to get the last word, but I've learned to keep walking. If I come across either of their dads, maybe I'll let them know their sons have moved on to extortion. Noise crashes out from the front of the saloon, which means the entire place is packed. Shouting, laughing, loud music on the upright piano. Just to play it safe, I go around toward the back entrance instead of the front. Everyone's inside, the back door unattended. I'm two steps up the porch when the door crashes open and two men tumble out. Big Bill Browning, one of the carekeepers of the Sidewinder, has got the skinny guy by the neck and tosses him to the dirt. You ain't allowed to touch the ladies unless you worked it out with them, Big Bill hollers. Don't come back till you learnt your lesson. The drunk picks himself up off the sandy ground, his legs not very steady, his eyes still spinning. I'm sorry, Bill. I didn't mean anything. I didn't intend for it to be like that. Intentions don't mean nothing, Big Bill says. You and I both know that. Go home. Sleep it off, Chester. Chester lowers his head. All right, he says, sounding like a little schoolboy. I'm going. Big Bill looks down at me. What are you doing here, kid? I show him the bag. Pa sent me down to try and keep us in our place, is all. Well, you be careful. Got a couple rough ones in here. The kind that'll shoot boys your age for sport. I hope he's exaggerating, but Big Bill ain't known for that, and I've never seen him so intense. He disappears into the building, and I follow. Everything reeks of beer. The distinct mix of hops and grain boiled down. Filthy men congregate inside. Dirt from the desert caked into every crevice, cattle and horsehair all over their clothes. All the action's up by the front, a huge circle of men huddled like they're itching for a fight. Most likely the same group of guys who rode over the hill. I pass by a man and woman engaged in a deep embrace that has them looking like an anaconda wrapped around a mongoose. The writhing couple pay me no mind, though, as I follow Big Bill to where he joins Reese behind the bar. Hey, Rocky! Reese says, speaking loud to be heard over the din. You came on an awfully unlucky day. Seems so. I lean against the rail, putting my bag between my body and the bar. Just trying to sell some of this stuff for Pa. He nods. From far away, his longish blonde hair and bright eyes make him seem young. Up close, you can see the years etched into his skin, especially round his eyes and mouth when he smiles. Tell you what. In the name of time and getting you safe, I'll take five or six pieces and move them over the next couple of days. Give you the money up front. Lighten your load. Throw in a sarsaparilla to sweeten the deal. 
I can't hold off smiling. That'd be just swell, Reese. You bet, he says with a nod. Easy on you, good for us. Added benefit for our patrons to be able to buy some irons, too. Show me what you got. Putting the bag on the counter, I take out a horseshoe, a small and basic cross, a pair of door handles, stirrups, and an intricate horse bridle. For a moment, it's a marvel seeing Pa's hard work laid out. Here's what I've got. Reese eyes the stash and takes the two door handles. Can always use these on account they're broken or stolen. Picks up the stirrups. These ones people are always asking for. That'd be swell, I say, before quoting him the price. Sounds like a fair deal. Reese slides the coins toward me, careful to keep his hand cupped over them. Don't let no one know you've got these. Don't want anyone beating you over the head on the ride back. He nods as I slip the coins in my pocket. What the bar isn't taken, I'll sell them for you. No worries about that. I appreciate this greatly, I say. He winks and turns, takes a soda bottle off the shelf behind him. He pops the top off with an opener. Now it's warm. We ain't got ice coming in here to keep anything cold. Not yet. The hotter-than-normal booze might be making some of these men a little more woolly than usual. Right, I say, and take a sip. It's bliss. Sugar. Sour. Wet. Thick. Coats my dry throat. I can't help but sigh. That's good. You know what, he says, sliding more coins under my hand. Grab me two sets of shoes. I pocket the coins and get the second shoe on the counter when there's a loud crack that sounds like a whip. The circle of people up front splits, revealing a woman in a white blouse huddled on the floor next to a tray of toppled glasses. Men grin from behind dirty faces, reminding me of hyenas ready to pounce on prey. I would have guessed she's one of the brothel workers from upstairs if it weren't for there only being one person in town with hair so red. Everyone's turned to the mean-looking man with the bushy brown beard who's laughing hard at Jolene picking an empty mug off the floor. He raises his hand and swats Jolene's backside, sends her sprinting off like a deer. The men howl and laugh as she runs right past me for the storeroom, her teenage eyes filled with tears. You ain't ever seen a woman before, one of the hyenas says. I don't say anything about her age or who her daddy is. I just shake my head and say, not treated like that. My quip inspires another round of guffaws. You hear that, Henry? The man in black asks, taking his time twirling the ends of his mustache. Jumpin' John Wyatt, the leader of the jumpers, as evil as they come. You going to treat a lady with such disrespect? He asks, his sarcasm almost sounding genuine. Everyone laughs. In a blink, they turn to something more interesting, as if nothing happened at all. All I want to do is make some sales and lighten my load. But maybe what Big Bill says is true. If they got no problem making a young woman cry, then what'll they do to me?